0: you are listening to the running with god podcast more nominal christianity like to welcome everyone to the Running with God podcast. I am your host, Coach Darby. Very excited to have you back for part four of a series that we're doing here on the podcast called Running to Follow Jesus. And as part of this series, we're really looking at the relationships that Jesus prioritized during His three years of ministry, a relationship with the Heavenly Father, something we call abiding. Um, We're looking at the relationship He developed with His disciples. Um, and we're also looking at the relationship he developed with the rest of the world. Um, just as a reminder, I'm using a great resource, a great book that I've discovered called Unburdened by Pastor Vance Pittman. This has been a great commentary to read alongside of the scriptures, and I would highly encourage this book. We're diving into a lot of concepts that are brought to light uh, through this book. And as always, of course, we are looking at the, the Holy Bible, God's word for any direction that we go with this podcast. But before we get into that, just want to speak to you for a moment about a great experience I had this past week. Um, I work uh, in the school system, and we were on spring break this past week. So I took my family out to Kentucky, and we went to the Ark Encounter, which is a life-size version of Noah's Ark that was created by the Answers in Genesis group. And I can't begin to tell you how blessed I was by this trip. It was amazing to go back in time, go back in history, and be inside of the ark and see the ark for its sheer size, its biblical dimensions. And it was just a wonderful experience. It was great getting to learn all of that history behind God's creation. Um, I really enjoyed hearing speakers from the um, Answers in Genesis apologetics group. Um, If you don't know the history of the ark out in Kentucky, it was built by a gentleman called Ken Ham, who is a creationist. Um, A biblical creationist, I should add, and his apologetics group, Answers in Genesis, um, oversees not only the Ark, but also the Creation Museum, which is a little further north in Kentucky, slightly south of Cincinnati. And we also went to the Creation Museum. And both of these places, the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum, very inexpensive uh, to go visit, and I guarantee you that if you go visit these places, you're going to be blessed by your experience. You're going to get to to see creation firsthand, to to learn a lot of science behind the creation of God. And these were just some just phenomenal experiences. I know my wife was equally blessed. My daughter was thrilled, was captivated the entire time. It didn't matter if we were walking through the decks of the ark looking at the animals, or if we were walking through the Garden of Eden in the Creation Museum. It was just this next-level, top-shelf experience. And one thing that really struck me was while we were at the Ark, Ken Ham actually showed up and led a lecture. And I just thought, how powerful is that? The guy that, that helped fund and make the place was there on a daily basis available to people that visit the park, leading lecture series on the Bible and on creation and on Genesis. I just thought that just spoke volumes to me. That's kind of like going to Disney World and having access to Walt Disney while you're there. Um, it was just a great experience and I highly recommend it. And I'm not getting paid anything to say this. I'm just from one Christian to another, from one Christ follower to another. You will be blessed if you take the time with your family to go out and visit the Ark Encounter or the Creation Museum or both in Kentucky. It was a wonderful experience. I also want to remind all of our listeners that I've got so much Running With God swag to send out. If you will send me an email at podcast at gmail.com, I promise I'm not going to spam you. I'm just trying to, to give out some swag to some of my most dedicated listeners. I've got stickers. I've got pens. I've got all sorts of great stuff I'd love to send you a Running With God podcast swag pack. All I need is an email from you and a mailing address, and I promise you there's no strings attached. I would love to send you a care package as just a form of gratitude for listening to the podcast and being a faithful subscriber. Um, I know that I've got several dedicated listeners out there. I just need a mailing address and I promise you, you're not going to get junk mail from me and I'm not going to sell your address to anybody. I just want to show you some of my gratitude by sending you some, some prizes and some little superlatives. And thank you so much for listening. This podcast is only successful because somebody actually takes the time to listen to it. So I, I just want to convey my thanks to that. So let's get right to the content today. We're looking at what it means to connect with other believers. We're really closely examining the, the fellowship aspect of being a Christ follower. And I want to read a quote to you from Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler is a pastor out in Texas. Uh, he's written a lot of books, and he's been part of a lot of content all on his own. One thing he said that applies to the lesson that we have today, and listen to this. These are great words. Matt Chandler says, The word, the gospel, creates not just people individually, but a people collectively. And I wanna give you an example of this. When I think about my family, if there's one thing that I can tell you about my family, is that we are a very diverse family. We've got people in my family. When I'm talking about my family, I'm talking about my wife, my kid, my extended family, my in laws, my parents, my siblings. just looking at them collectively as a family, we've got everybody from introverts to athletes. We've got musicians, we've got gamers, we've got people that are into fitness. We've really got a little bit of everything. But if I had to pinpoint one thing, one thing that unites us, one thing that is a strong, unbreakable bond in my family, it would have to be Atlanta Braves baseball. That's one thing that we all have in common. We're all a big old pack of Atlanta Braves fans. It's the closest Major League Baseball team to where I live in Spartanburg, South Carolina. We firmly sit in what is called Braves country, which is a number of states that do not have a pro baseball team, but we all sit in close proximity to Atlanta. And I can remember times when I was growing up, where you didn't touch the television remote if the Braves game was on. All you would have to do is settle down in that floor and get comfortable and watch that Braves game because heaven forbid that you touch Mr. Darby's remote in the middle of a Braves game. A Braves game was like a rite of passage. All of life stopped to watch that game because back in the heydays, Uh, the Bobby Cox days of Atlanta Braves baseball, the Braves teams were very good. They won the pennant virtually every year. They were always part of the playoff talk. They made very many World Series appearances, unfortunately. They only won one World Series in 1995, but they were always a threat to winning the World Series year after year after year. And over time, I developed this very strong bond with the Atlanta Braves baseball team. And to this day, I am a diehard Atlanta Braves fan. And that has permeated my family. Um, My sister, also a Braves fan, my dad, my mom, my in-laws, my wife, even my daughter has uh, earned her rights as a Braves fan. Uh, She's very proud of that team. She's got jerseys in the closet. She loves Ronald Acuna Jr., by far her favorite baseball player. Um, And it's just part of our family. It's the one thing that really, truly, and it may sound a little humorous to hear that, but Braves baseball really unites my family. It's it's one thing that we all come together on. It's the topic of discussion around the dinner table. Anytime the family is together, what's going on with Braves baseball? What do you think about this win? What do you think about this loss? What do you think about our pitching staff? It's just funny to see how Braves baseball has ingrained itself in my family. It might even be fair to say that Braves baseball is a point of fellowship when it comes to my family. And that's kind of what I want to talk about. I want to talk about fellowship today. So several years ago, John Eldridge published a short book called Epic. And its premise is that you and I are part of a much bigger story than our own. And it's God's story. And in thinking about God's family, I like what Eldridge writes about God and this idea of it not being good for us to be alone. So here's what he says in his book, Epic. Now, I have a confession to make. Ever since I began to believe in God, I have pictured God as alone, sovereign, powerful, all of that, but alone, by himself. Perhaps the notion sprang from the fact that I felt myself to be alone in the universe. Or perhaps it came from the religious images of God seated on a great throne way up there somewhere. However wonderful it is to discover, though, that God has not ever been alone. There has always been the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God has always been a fellowship. The whole story began with something relational. And when Eldred writes the whole story began with something relational, I believe he's referring to Genesis chapter 1, where Scripture first reveals that God is not only a person, but a community of persons. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to flip to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to be reading um, a piece of scripture that kind of alludes to what God looks like as a community of persons. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Let us, did you hear it? Let us in our image. In the very first chapter of God's Word to us, He revealed Himself to be this relational being. This is what theologians call the Trinity. It means that God exists in three distinct persons in one unique being, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes this is really hard to wrap your mind around. It seems very mysterious that God can be... One, but at the same time can be three. But is it really all that difficult to understand? I mean, I want to give you something obvious like water. Think about water. Everybody knows what water is. And water has this great ability to come to us in three different forms. It can come to us as a liquid. That's how we think about water, as a liquid. But you can also freeze water and make water a solid. And you can boil water and make it a gas. You can make it evaporate. It's still water, no matter what form it comes in, but it has this great ability to come to you in three different ways, as a solid, as a liquid, and as a gas. God is the same way. God comes to us through the Father, God comes to us through the Son, and God comes to us through the Holy Spirit. He exists in three different ways. And this is biblical, too. This is not just an idea or an opinion. I can, I can prove this biblically. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter three. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And this is probably the best example of an interaction between the persons of the Trinity that's found at Jesus' baptism. And this is before the start of his public ministry. So once again, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you really look back at that scripture, you can identify all three persons of the Trinity. You see Jesus the Son, standing there in human form, being baptized as a human being. You see the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on Him. There's the Holy Spirit. And then you hear the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son and who I am well pleased. Well, that voice from heaven is the Father. So just in that verse of Scripture in the book of Matthew, we see all three persons of the Trinity interacting one with another. Why is it important for us to accept the reality of the Trinity? It's because God is a relational being built on relationships. He created us in His image, in His likeness, and that means that we were created for relationships. If you flip back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, you'll see that in that book of the Bible, God says, and then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. The Hebrew word translated good can also be translated best. So let me ask you this. Would you like to experience the absolute best life possible? I don't think anybody out there would answer that question and say, no, I'll settle for an average life or I'll settle for a C-plus life. We all want the best life possible. And it says here plainly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God is saying clearly, it is not good for man to be alone. I mean, another way of saying that with the original Hebrew is that it is not best for man to be alone. And God understands this as the Trinity. I mean, have you ever really thought about why so many times in the Bible, when God is talking about himself, he refers to himself as us? He's a relational being, and he wants us to be relational beings because, once again, we are made in his image. I think the bottom line here is that God wants what's best for us, and we're never going to experience that apart from relationships with others. I mean, think about it. Even people who don't follow Jesus say that the meaning of life is found in relationships with other people. They, too, connect with family, with friends, with spouses, with people that they care about. And without relationships, life doesn't have a whole lot of meaning or significance or value. And I think that's true for all of humanity. But one thing that's great is that when you are allowing Christ to live through you, that relationship piece is amplified. And I want to kind of switch gears now and take a look at Acts chapter 2. And this is what many theologians consider the birth of the New Testament church. And looking at Acts chapter 2, what we have here is this great scene of these, what I call supercharged disciples that are just full of God's spirit. And they're bursting onto the streets of Jerusalem. And they're preaching the gospel. And they're shouting about the glorious things of God. And most of this chapter has been recorded as a sermon from the Apostle Peter, where he calls on his Jewish brothers and sisters to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And up until this point, Jesus has ultimately been the Jews' stumbling block. They failed to recognize him as the Messiah. They failed to repent from their sins of rejecting him and murdering him on the cross. So I want you to listen to Peter's message in Acts Acts chapter 2, and we're looking at mainly verse 41. It says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. That literally means that from the preaching of Peter that day, 3,000 Jews heard the gospel and accepted Jesus and repented from their sins. And, And if you heard the word I said in that verse, it says they were added. Have you ever thought about that? What does that mean that they were added? It's important for us to understand that when the Greek word translated added is used here, it's used in a passive voice. That means the subject is receiving the action rather than doing the action. So when the Bible records that these people were added, it means they didn't add themselves to something. It means they were added by someone. The moment they began following Jesus, God supernaturally, by His Spirit, added them to something. The word add can also be translated to join together with. And the Bible uses this same term again in Acts chapter 2 verses 47 when it says, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we need to ask, what were they being added to? With whom was God joining them together? And the answer is that they were being added to the community of believers, what we call the church. So within the context of the city of Jerusalem, a new family had been created, and that family is the family of God. Anytime somebody begins a relationship with God, he's immediately added that person to his family in this great supernatural way. And the same is true today. When someone becomes a Christian in your church or in your community, God has added that person to his, his family. So if you are a Christ follower like I am, you're a brother of mine, or you might be a sister of mine. We're all part of the same family. The really supernatural thing is we're part of this family with other great Bible heroes, other great people of faith like Rahab and Moses and David and Paul Um, Just uh, The list goes on of all of these people that are in our extended family. Here's the important point. I'm going to read this directly from the book Unburdened by Vance Pittman. Here's what he has to say. is probably the most important thing you'll hear today. The New Testament knows nothing of Christianity without community. Nothing. It's not an option. Being a Christian is entirely relational, beginning with our relationship with Jesus and then including our relationship within the church. New Testament is saturated with biblical community. It opens with the four Gospels detailing the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all of which brings us to the right relationship with God. And then you have the book of Acts, which introduces us to the beginning of the New Testament community in Jerusalem, which we call the church. And finally, every other book of the New Testament was written either to address a community of believers or to bring about a change within the context of a community of, of believers. So think about other books of the New Testament like Galatians. I mean, it's a letter written to a community of believers in Galatia. I mean, think about the book of Romans. Once again, it's a letter written to the community of believers in Rome. And then you've got Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Once again, letters written to a community of believers in Thessalonica. Now, you know, I haven't forgotten about some of these other books that are letters written to individuals like Timothy. Um, But don't forget about those letters. I mean, we're talking about letters that were written to an individual, but to establish leadership in the community of believers and to describe both how leadership was to lead and how the body of Christ was to function. I've got great news for you if you're a Christ follower. You have a family. You have a family of believers that stand with you and stand behind you and stand to support you. And that's because God is relational, and He desires for us to be relational too. I want to share with you something that, that came from Harvard University that began in 1939. This is great. So back in 1939, Harvard University commissioned a research project that became the longest study of adult human development in the history of research. This project continued for 75 years, studying the development of 724 men, 456 from Boston's poorest neighborhoods, and 268 Harvard graduates. Interestingly, the project continued for so long that it actually outlived the researchers who started it. In 2014, this incredible research project finally came to an end, and Robert Waldinger, the current director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, shared some of the results from the study, and this is what he had to say. He says, what are the lessons that have come from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we've generated on these lives? Well, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder and harder. The clearest message that we've gotten from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. Relationships are messy and they're complicated. But over and over, over these 75 years, our study has shown that the people who fared the best were the people who leaned into relationships with family, with friends, and with community. The good life is built with good relationships. I find it very fascinating that it took Harvard University 75 years and probably millions of dollars worth of research to come to the same conclusion that we've been exploring in God's Word, and it's the life of a Jesus follower is all about relationships, and it's that relational peace that will make you full and make you happy and help you live a life worth living. So what is it? about relationships in a community of believers such as a church? What makes them so significant? I think the answer is found back in Acts chapter 2. And we read a verse from Acts chapter 2 earlier when we looked at verse 41. But I want to continue now um, from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Listen to the words of Peter. He said, So they were continually devoted to themselves, to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all of those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions, and they were sharing them with all, as any one might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from one house to another, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people." And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I want to read one verse from that passage again because it contains the four elements to the great relationships that take place in a church, the keys, if you will, to having great relations within a church group. Paul says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, that first one, he said, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does that mean? Well, that means that they were studying together. They were learning together. They were reading their Bible together. They were taking part in Bible studies together. Then it says that they were in fellowship with one another. Now, that's not rocket science. That simply means that they spent time together. Everything that they did was not always serious and churchy. They spent time with each other outside of the temple, outside of the church. Thirdly, Peter says they broke bread together. Now, I feel like Christians today are exceptional at this one. We're really good at that, and, and it, it means exactly what it says. They broke bread together. That means they ate together. They went out to eat together. They, you know, they invited each other over for dinner, or maybe they even went out to their favorite restaurant. Um, but, but the relationship piece of breaking bread together means they spent time around the dinner table with each other. And it says, Finally, and certainly not least of these, they prayed together. They prayed together. They shared each other's burdens. They prayed as a group, whether corporate or as a small group or individual. They learned how to talk to God together. I mean, have you ever noticed that in the New Testament of God's Word, we see this phrase, one another, All the time. We see one another passages all over the New Testament. I'm about to give you some of these. It's going to be rapid fire time. I'm going to give you scripture from all over the New Testament that uses that critical phrase, one another. So we're going to start in John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. First Peter chapter four, verse 10. As each other has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of a manifold of grace of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, be devoted to one another in a brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. James 5, verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Romans 14, verse 13. Let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. In Galatians chapter six, verse two, bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I mean doesn't it sound great? to live in a community founded on loving one another? Can't you imagine the joy of lifelong friends who are dedicated to serving and encouraging one another? Can't you imagine this great place where people give preference to one another and don't complain about one another? A place where people refuse to judge one another, but instead choose to bear one another's burdens through mutual support? That is what we call the family of God. And that is the blessing that we're called to create as Christ followers. And that's the community that we're invited to enjoy. And what we're going to discuss in the next coming weeks of this podcast are some practical ways that you can be relational in the community of God, in the community of believers, the community of Christ followers that you are always intended to be a part of. God bless you, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Running With God podcast. More than nominal Christianity. Send us an email at runningwithgodpodcast at gmail.com.